How do you normally start cooking? Olive oil, right? Well, I have great news for you. This podcast is also brought to you by California Olive Ranch, expertly crafted extra version olive oil. Go to CaliforniaOliveRanch.com and enter the promo code CHICKENS10, that's one word, CHICKENS10, to receive 10% off your entire first purchase. The offer is available through December 31st. California Olive Ranch, discovery starts in the bottle. Let's start the show. Pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredu rou pian. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hello everyone. How are you? Getting ready for Thanksgiving? Turkey's already brining. Cranberry sauce is done. Some pumpkin pie is already made as well. Don't brine your turkey. Anyway, welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. This is my next to last episode of the season, but don't be sad because I'll be back in March, maybe. And as always, if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you a few things. My name is David G. Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Why? Great question. Well, I'm originally from Portugal and I've been living in Washington, D.C. for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and all the platforms you have access to. Follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes. Also, if you want to send me an email, you can send me an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. I hope you have an amazing time listening to every episode. And don't forget, I'm Portuguese, so if you don't understand something, don't write a complaint. My guest today is an Aussie meats expert and a live fire cook expert. In 2015, she moved to Austin, Texas. According to her, since undergoing her meat education, she has done a bunch of cool stuff. She has hosted a TV show, Aussie Barbecue Heroes, judge at the biggest barbecue competition in the world. She has her own line of unique meat seasoning called Hardcore Carnivore. And in 2018, she wrote the cookbook, Hardcore Carnivore, Cook Meat Like You Mean It. Jess Prylis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. How are you today? I'm doing great. I, I've picked up a bunch of meat for the weekend, so it's looking good. <laughs> I wish my weekends were like that. I just pick up a bunch <laughs> of meat for the weekend and that's it. Two important questions since I'm from Portugal. Have you ever been to Portugal? No, I haven't. It's okay. But do you know any Portuguese words? I do because I've been to Brazil. Okay. So I know, you know, the basic... Obrigada. Mm-hmm. And bom dia. That you can almost start a conversation with us. <laughs> so I know how to say hello and thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, that's all we need anyway. Okay, Jess, so we're going to start right away. Let's be honest here. Is that really true that Australians dislike kiwis, the people, but not the fruit? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> There's definitely a cultural rivalry there. And not only because Australia is a physically bigger country, you know, we just know we're the better ones. That's okay. Do you ever talk with anybody or do you have any friends that eat their meat well done? I don't really, because, you know, obviously my, my immediate circle is like-minded meat enthusiasts and we generally tend to like meat medium rare. I think my dad might be a well done steak person, maybe. I don't know. It's been, I, he, they still live in Australia and I'm in Texas now. But 
But it's also actually really interesting because it's cultural. A lot of African-American people, for example, tend to like their steaks more well done. Um, just because I think historically that's what they grew up eating. So I, I see it in my posts. Like you can see who comments on what and who's comfortable with different levels of doneness. It's actually very interesting. Where and how does your passion for open fire cooking comes from? It probably stems from a visit to Texas all those years ago. Well, that was my first taste of barbecue. We didn't really have traditional like smoked barbecue in Australia because it's, it's an American cooking style. Um, so I had it for the first time, the very first time I visited Texas, which is probably like 15 years ago now. And it was just such a flavor revolution and very beef centric. And I've always been partial to red meat. So getting to have that really, you know, smoky, low and slow cooking with big beef ribs and, and the meatiness and umaminess of beef ribs was very, very life changing for me. Um, and then as you start cooking over charcoal, it starts like my, I, I'm a self-taught cook. And my story is basically that, you know, I, I wanted to teach myself to cook over charcoal because I never really cook steak at home because I was just intimidated by it. I wasn't sure what to buy. I wasn't really sure how to cook it. And then honestly, the more you do it, the more you, I think, un unfurl this love for it. For me now, there's sort of this obsession. I'm even moving away from reverse sear because I don't feel like you get an aggressive enough crust and char and Maillard. So I think it's once you, once you, you get, you get obsessed because of the flavor and then you get, you stay obsessed because it's just a fascinating way to cook, really. That was actually my follow-up question. Why do you think people are so intimidated to cook meat? Because people are afraid of it, aren't they? They are. First of all, I think, especially with beef, it's an expensive protein. And there's something about, you know, that's why people are happy to go with entry-level burgers or something, which is much more affordable. But big whole roasts are something that people feel that they can't afford to mess up, which I completely understand. Uh, I also think that it's very difficult for people with the being butchery na names are different all over the world and meat is a natural material, you know, like any other ingredient, there's varying levels of quality. So, you know, maybe if you don't understand enough about it, the steak you bought last time might cook completely differently or, or taste differently or have a different texture or tenderness level than last time. And, and you might think, oh, that's too variable. I'm just going to give it all up. So it does take understanding a little bit about what you're buying, why it's a little bit different and how to cook it to sort of confidently move forward with it. And I, and I think that for some people, it can be a steep learning curve, but it's actually not that difficult. In a very basic way, can you teach and explain what should you look when you buy meat? Of course, there's different kinds of meat, but you know, normally two or three things that people should really pay attention to. So for red meat, I think that the thing you're looking for is what we call marbling, which is the very small rivets of fat that look like little lightning bolts through the meat. And that's the last type of form uh, fat on the animal to form. And fat it has the most flavor. So fat actually carries more flavor than muscle. So when you have those, those, that marbling and those fat lightning bolts, you're getting more flavor. Fat's also easier to bite through than muscle. So it makes it more tender as well. So the higher marbling we see in meat, that's usually a pretty good indicator of a great steak. 
Uh, if you're standing in front of the meat case, you know, you don't want to buy anything that looks too slippery or wet on the surface because it might be an indication that that steak's not doing a good job of holding water, which means it's going to be much drier even after you cook it. And there's a bunch of different stuff that goes into why it was like that before you even bought it. But generally the rule of thumb is, and I, I know this isn't tremendously helpful, but buy the best meat you can afford because usually the price is commensurate with quality. Do you see a lot of difference from Australia to the United States when it comes to the seller, when you go buy something, for instance, I'm, I come from Portugal and I always make a lot of jokes, especially when I was teaching classes here that when you buy chicken in Portugal, the chicken is pretty much on the dry-ish side in a way. Here, it always comes with that liquid, right? That's sodium something soap. And there's just weird little things that we have here that we don't have, for instance, back home in Portugal. Did sure. you find anything interesting buying something in Australia that you just don't see it here or vice versa? So a lot of the, you get a lot more grass-fed product for, for red meat and beef in Australia, and you get a lot more lamb. That's one thing I miss because I love lamb as a protein. But I think it's interesting, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, when we talk about those additives. Some of them are unfortunately a necessity of, of a huge scale food, you know, uh, food production system. But it is interesting that most pork you buy here in the States will have some kind of solution added to it which is basically a pre-brine and i don't think they have that in australia just because the market is much smaller so you have to be able to justify doing those steps in advance but it is it is sort of funny like the meat industry has sort of responded to consumers not knowing how to do by try how to do things by trying to make it as easy as possible for them you know when they buy the raw product so yeah. Any similarities or differences that Australians and Americans have when it comes to food or their approach to food? I, I think, and perhaps this is going to be similar with Europe, the one thing that I found a little bit difficult when I first moved to America, and obviously this is notwithstanding all of the amazing, you know, smallholders and farms and ranches, but on the whole, the scale of things here, the fact that you can buy, you know, Cisco product already cut, chopped, blended, where all you have to do is open a bag of coleslaw and it's done like there's literally no cooking required the amount of just preservatives and extenders and binders and additives to feed a bigger population with bigger logistics and and food distribution that has to last longer i felt like on the whole food in australia was a little bit cleaner and there wasn't a, as many you know things added into it that's all so it was hard for me when i came here because the biggest, the, the worst thing was we have, I, I just wanted great bread. And I don't understand why Americans put so much sugar in their bread. That was the hardest part. Join my club. Yes. I come from a country, you know, I, I have to say Portugal is the best country in the world, but it, it's not. But, you know, Portugal, um, Greece, Italy, France, we have great bread. And the funny thing is that a lot of states that there was a big Portuguese migration 50, 60 years ago, like Rhode Island, California, they have great bakeries because there's a lot of Portuguese people because our bread is more easty, tastes very like East. Uh, and here I absolutely agree with you. It's very sugary. Uh, and that's something I crave because I love breads. I absolutely love bread, just eating good quality bread. Is there any meat or cuts of meat that you wouldn't grill over an open fire? Uh, yeah, so like A5 Wagyu is not really suitable for grilling just because of the fat content. You know, bacon you can kind of grill if you have your grill set up in a certain way for the same reason. 
generally there's nothing that can't be grilled because you can always set your, your grill up as like a charcoal fueled oven. So you can always set it up for indirect and, and find a method that works for you, even if not direct. So I don't think that I've run across a protein that isn't suited. For the- do you like to do pizzas on a grill? I do. I, so <laughs> I don't cook that much pizza at home just because I felt like if I ate as much as I wanted to, I would be enormous. <laughs> so <laughs> I try and steer away from it, but I have had, of course, there are all these new amazing pizza ovens that they're building for your backyard and they're, the, the pizza that comes off them is phenomenal. You still have to have good dough. It still comes back to the bread factor, exactly. right? Exactly. Uh, one of the distinct flavors of barbecue, uh, barbecue has a lot of elements, as you know, way better than than me. But, you know, it's from the charcoal to the rubs to the smoke techniques. Using electric grill, yay or nay? I, I say nay. Uh, I don't like a propane or a gas grill just because you don't get that level of, of flavor development. I feel like for a, a formerly trained chef, it's the same as saying don't cook with the cheapest wine, you know, or don't cook... There's there's a flavor that comes from the charcoal that you cannot replicate with gas, but more so than that, you can you also can control your heat. So a great cook knows how to control what they're cooking. They understand the right pan to choose. They control their heat. They control their protein. And when you're limited to the BTUs in the in the propane grill. Um, same with an electric smoker. A lot of them are, are based on convenience. And generally, I think it's safe to say, and I'm interested to get your thought on this. Generally, the rule of thumb in the kitchen is if it's a tool designed to, for convenience, you're, you're usually sacrificing something to get something that. Something else. Yes, absolutely. I agree. In the past years, a lot of studies mentioned that the harm of consuming meat for us and for the environment. Do you find any resistance from people, especially when you are so open about your love for meat? No, I I don't because generally, you know, I'm attracting like-minded people um, every now and again, and it's rare. There'll be a full-on vegan attack, which is, you know, it's one extreme or the other. I know there are people concerned about um, sustainability Uh, And that is a conversation that keeps needing to happen. I also think it's interesting for people to educate themselves because, uh, you know, for example, India is one of the top three producers of beef in the world. And most people are surprised to hear that given the relationship of India and sacred cows. But, you know, the the beef industry in the United States is outputting at about 3% greenhouse gas emissions. The beef industry in India is at about 10% or more. So when you look at global emissions, it's not from the bigger Western industries. So what do you do about that? Um, I think in terms of a health thing, it's really interesting because you got the rise of the carnivore diet, which you know I, I personally believe in a balanced diet is is the best thing. That's just for me. But respect everyone's right to believe what they want. But the rise of the carnivore diet was a thing. And then you've got the rise of the keto. And when people are talking about the concern or even the grass versus grain fed, there's also a lot of buzzwords within the industry of like, well, I'll be healthier than yours. And when you actually get down to like looking at the differences in nutritional value or fat lipid content in grass versus grain, arguably there are some lipids in grass fed beef that are better for you but they're not in large enough amounts. So uh, so the whole thing with science is 
is it th theoretically possible versus actually you know affecting you so it's not in large enough amounts to have a significant impact on our diet um and then you know i'm in the middle of doing a graduate uh, course at Iowa State University in meat science and it's taught me so much like even to be able to sit here and I can tell you the reason that bacon is actually safe to eat even though it has a bad reputation please because... do because I love bacon okay <laughs> so basically the problem was in the 1960s and 70s in America before they were you know regulating things or things were have always been regulated by the USDA and the FDA even into the early turn of the century but at that stage, they were using higher uh, amounts of nitrites to cure the meat. And they found that w when those higher amounts were used, um, that they were reacting with these things in the meat called secondary amines to form another compound called nitrosamine. And nitrosamine is carcinogenic. So they scaled back the maximum allowed amount of nitrates. Now here's the thing. Since the 1970s, since they scaled back the amounts, there have been no reported findings of nitrosamine creation. So they check it every now and again, you know, to monitor it. However, it's still theoretically possible that that's the reaction that happens. And that's what perpetuates the, the whole uh, cancer debacle within bacon. So it's just one of those things. I mean, of course, we know that salt is toxic for us as well but it's also self-regulating because if you put too much food in salt, it, it, salt in food, it's inedible. So it's the same thing, it, just being cautious of, of quantity. Do you think in the future, because now there's more information than ever, right? It's, you know, even the internet helped with that. But on the other hand, there's also very wrong information. And people don't know if they should look to the left or to the right, where should they go? Do you think it's something that eventually will calm down in the future or do you think there'll be even more you know different types of diets coming in and people say no no that's the one and then people say no I don't don't do that because it's, it's very complicated so, you know I know people that you know, are diabetics and they were eating things until five months ago they thought were great and actually they're not good so there's just too much right there's just too much information you have no idea where to turn do you think that will change or just make it worse I think it'll just continue to worsen and I think that if you look if you look on the internet to try and find something to support an idea you have, you'll always find it no matter what your idea is. And, and that's the point that there, there are arguments for and against. And the dangerous part, unfortunately as well, is the loss of verified sources um, and, and, you know, kind of self-titled experts, which arguably someone might say that about me as well. But, you know, for me personally, that's why it's been very important to, really do the research and the work into understanding meat, understanding meat cuts, understanding meat science, you know, not, it's not just grilling. So I think it'll, I think it'll continue to sort of just expand. If you, you know, think about it, they used to tell you smoking was good for anxious women back in the day. I think we're <laughs> always going to find something that we promote and then find out that there's something wrong with it. It's nearly human nature. That's true. Did you ever face any prejudice for being a woman in the food business when we tend to associate, especially barbecue, a more predominant male adventure? Uh, I haven't. On the whole, it's been extremely supportive. And I think, you know, as evidenced by the stuff that I've done and the audience that I've curated, there are people who are, are, are fully willing to listen to a woman and what she has to say on the subject. Every now and again with trolls, you get some ridiculous comment like, this is why women shouldn't be allowed near the barbecue. But I'm, 
you know, I'm, I'm mainly convinced that they say that just because they know it's something that they should say rather yeah. than that they believe it. On the whole, um, it's been a really, you know, it's been, it's been very positive. So shifting our conversation here a little bit, what was your first memory of taste? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Thank you. I ask only one good question per podcast. So that's the question. <laughs> so all in right now on this question. I don't have a lot of childhood memories. You know, when people say, well, I remember, blah, blah, blah. I don't have those. I think it would have to be something to do with salt because I, I would stand at the fridge at my parents' house just eating olives out of the jar. Like always loved salty food. So mm -hmm. probably that. The most underrated ingredient for you? 100%. Oh, I mean, it works both ways. I mean, okay. salt's probably the most underrated. Well, it's not really underrated, but if you've ever actually tasted meat in, in some... Um, in some taste studies, they'll give you, like when they're trying to research steaks and tenderness, they'll make you eat steak that's unseasoned, so you're just focusing on the texture. If you've ever actually eaten completely unseasoned beef, it's an extraordinary experience. Underrated, underrated, underrated. Don't know, what do I use a lot? It's, they're not underrated though. I started using a lot more Mexican ingredients, like chilies when I moved to Texas. That was so interesting to get to explore that world. Let's just say animal fats. You can put tallow in, in place of oils and, lo and butters, and it just has this tremendous flavor and a high smoke point, too. Any answer you'll give, Jess, it's a valid answer. You can say whatever you want. Okay, so any animal fat, perfect. Overrated ingredients. Oh, ah, oh, come on. These are too good. I need time to think about it. No, that's the whole point. If people think about this, that, it loses the essence. Uh, microgreens? <laughs> Nobody should listen to my episode number six, which was on a microgreens one. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no it's okay. <laughs> Thank you, Jess. Best breakfast you can have? Homemade biscuits. American-style biscuits, not British-style cookies. Do you, <laughs> yeah, there's a difference. Do you like uh, biscuits and gravy? Just as a side note. No, I like biscuits and jam. I do not like... You know what? Cream gravy. That's my overrated ingredient. It's just an uncooked roux, America. Let's be honest. Watch out, Jess. I'm just, okay. I'm okay. What is the strangest combination, combination food-wise, that people might put together that you just like know? When they try and use donuts as burger buns. That's weird, right? It is weird. I, I totally understand the relationship of sugar and salt, like fleur de sel and a little bit of brown sugar in barbecue sauces and things like that. But then it just gets to the stage where it's like, stop, just stop. Just stop doing this. Can I share with you a few that some people told me? Please. That they actually, something they eat, they think it's, they, that some people might think it's a little weird. Someone told me one time, popcorn and tomato soup. But so what's so the first thing you think of when you think of popcorn and tomato soup? What's the first thing that I think? I just think it's yeah. gross. I don't, I don't have any association to, well, I guess it's the croutons, right? The first thing that I think of that makes it gross for me is the, how horrible the texture of soggy popcorn is and how instantly it would go soggy. That's sure. my problem, more than corn in soup. I also heard a coleslaw sandwich. Ew, that's not as bad as popcorn in soup. And do I have anything else? Oh, well, a lot of people say the mayo, mayo and banana sandwich. That's also a thing. Oh, that's... Sorry, Jess, there you go. Three suggestions for you later today if you want to try. 
so the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Oh, man. Let's go turning chickens. Turning chickens? Okay, yeah. that's good. Go at, at the end of the podcast, I also tell my guests other Portuguese quote, which is to sell their fish. In Portugal, if someone tells you to sell your fish, that means to talk about yourself. What's in the future for you? Where people can find you? Just sell your fish, Jess. Selling my fish yes. or selling my meat in this case. Selling but, your meat, that's true. So I also have a seasoning company called Hardcore Carnivore. You can see that at hardcorecarnivore.com, uh, which is part of my ethos of definitely use seasoning but let the meat shine. You can see my recipes at jessprials.com. You can find me on all social media at, at jessprials on all of the things uh, and YouTube and IG and all of that good stuff. Perfect. Is so that a good sell? That, that was a great sell. Are you grilling anything tonight? Yes. Tonight I'm doing chipotle pork chops with a mango salsa. So I'm not sure how long is the flight, but I'll stop by probably around 9 p.m. So, you know, just That's save good. me one. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I'll keep it warm. <laughs> Jess, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, David. It was great. And, you know, if you're ever super hungry, two things, a coleslaw sandwich or tomato soup with popcorn. Oh, terrible. Before we leave today, a couple of things. Don't forget Friday is the last episode of the season. Don't be sad. I'll be back. Second thing you can do, don't forget you can share the podcast to your friends, to your neighbors. Just start yelling on the streets, turning chickens and breaking dishes. Tell them all about the chickens we're turning and the dishes we're breaking. Follow me on Instagram at turningchickensbreakingdishes. If you want to send me an email, you can do so. It's info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Also, if you want to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. I'll see you on Friday. Hang in there. Adeus.